This is the Wide Awake Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirsten Kazarian. As a child psychologist, I believe the most important part of the work I do is supporting parents by helping them deeply attune to their child and find their own balance of connection, nourishment, and inspiration. To do this, I lean on the practice of mindfulness. Join me in a conversation about raising our kids, raising our consciousness, and trying to stay awake. Welcome to episode 31 of our podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Chantel Garrett, the founder of Strong365, a mental health support community created to ensure that more people get the right kind of help and support for mental health concerns earlier when it matters most. As a supporter and advocate for her brother who lives with schizophrenia, Chantel's work merges a personal passion with her career as a seasoned corporate marketer to drive radical change in the way we view brain health and how we access care. Strong365 is a mental health support community and resource hub for young people and their families who are experiencing psychosis. For those who may be unfamiliar, psychosis is a set of underlying symptoms such as hallucinations and delusions that are common in the conditions such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. It's estimated that roughly 3% of the population will experience psychosis at some point in their lives, and the onset is typically in teen and young adult years. Strong365 offers online education and peer support, and is also conducting research to understand the role of digital media in connecting young people to specialized mental health care. They're organized as a program of the nonprofit One Mind, whose mission is to support brain health research. So Chantel, you're the founder of Strong365. What inspired you to take on this project? Yeah, um, I was inspired to support young people who are going through psychosis based on my own family's experience supporting my brother who lives with schizophrenia. Um, And just to put that into context, my brother was diagnosed when he was 20 years old, and that's a fairly common time um, in someone's life for them to be diagnosed with a psychotic disorder. And for context, too, he's now 40. So it's been a long and at times treacherous road to recovery. Um, I'm really grateful today that he's in a good place. Um, But there were weeks and months that I really wasn't sure if he would make it through his illness alive. Um, And to sum up the the past 20 years is just to say that it was incredibly traumatic for the whole family. Uh, And even though my extended family has a long history of mental illness, it wasn't something that was ever talked about. And I think because of that, we didn't see it coming, nor did we know uh, what it was or how to help him when we did see it. So for a long time after my brother got sick, I volunteered for mental health organizations that were raising awareness and tackling stigma, which is really important, but it never really felt like enough. It felt like my family's house was on fire. My brother's life was at stake, and I was working on what sort of felt like an important thing, but still, as compared to our circumstances, relatively intangible. 
So in 2013, while working in my first career as a corporate marketer, I learned about a new early intervention treatment model for psychosis that was somewhat new to the United States, but was based on 30 years of research in Australia and Europe, where through their universal healthcare systems, they have an integrated network of early intervention programs that serve teens and young adults, which are focused entirely on full functional recovery. These programs are based on a whole lot of research that essentially shows that the time that it takes someone to get into treatment after a first episode of psychosis is the primary predictor of that person's long-term health outcomes. So in other words, it's like dysfunction in any other part of the body, right? Whether it be a bone or a ligament or an organ, getting help right away can make a huge impact on your health outlook. That's incredibly powerful. That means that if we can find people in the earliest stages of schizophrenia, we can effectively prevent a significant portion of some pretty devastating long-term effects that have traditionally come from some mix of either poor treatment or lack of treatment, things like school dropout, unemployment, homelessness, and even suicide. So that was the real impetus for Strong 365. It was this idea to connect young people to solid information and resources earlier when there was still an opportunity to interrupt that person's health trajectory through these comprehensive care centers that specialize in treating young people in a pretty holistic way. Um, so yeah, so that's that, that was the, the impetus uh, behind Strong 365. Wow. Thank you so much, Chantel. You're so articulate in sharing, I mean, such an intense um, story. And, you know, it's really activates kind of the mom heart in me, the therapist heart <laughs> in me, sister heart in me. Um, and so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about, and, and I, you know, and what I, I love that you did is, you know, you stayed really present. You were very honest about how traumatizing this experience was for you and it activated you like it, you took action, you learned and you supported and you said, this isn't enough. And then you found more. And so can you tell us a little bit, what is the mission of strong mm -hmm. three, six, five and who, mm -hmm. who does strong three, six, five serve? Yeah. So Strong 365 serves young people primarily between the ages of 15 and 25 who are experiencing psychosis. Um, and we really aim to empower these young people as well as their families with, like I said, good, solid information and resources online. We also uh, serve to connect them to high quality care in their community. And that's through partnerships with these early intervention clinics across the United States. And we also offer support via our online community of people who have had these experiences. And we also hope to educate the public about psychosis. When we think about kind of um, the, the meta mission, um, we think about, you know, how important it is that it is just as okay to talk about depression or anxiety as it is to talk about maybe being frightened because you're hearing voices when you listen to music or you're seeing shadows or spots of light or people around you notice that maybe you're holding what appears to be some pretty bizarre beliefs and they need to talk to you about that. So if we can't talk about these experiences, we can't get the help we need. Um, so we want to be there as an organization to raise awareness and kind of normalize 
normalize and humanize some of these experiences through our community who, who have had these experiences and are sharing them through, through our, our, uh, our platform. Um, we do our work in a variety of ways, but our work is primarily digital and it is facilitated through academic research. So currently we're partnering with a clinical research team in New York to measure the impact of Strong 365's awareness campaign on the time it takes for young people to find treatment. So the idea there is if we can have a significant impact on shortening the pathway to mental health care for psychosis by meeting people where they are, which as you can imagine is largely searching for this type of information on their devices, then we believe that we have a model that can be easily scaled nationally to serve as a centralized online triage center for psychosis, uh, providing both this online support through our own um, therapists and peer specialists and people who have been there, as well as through this high-touch referral service to the network of, of early specialized um, treatment care clinics. And you were talking about, you know, destigmatizing, normalizing this conversation. One of the things that popped into my mind was this amazing board you have of all these young faces, you know, when I look at your um, board of youth leaders. So what effect does that have on your organization, having these young people in leadership roles? Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Our youth leadership board is comprised of people who have a personal experience with psychosis, and now they're back to wellness after that experience. Um, they're oftentimes incredibly grateful for the support they received, and they want to kind of pay it forward for other young people. So the leadership board is is really the lifeblood of the organization. At the outset of forming Strong 365, the very first thing I did was recruit our initial leadership board members to help me shape our mission and our strategy. And they've been essentially supporting our evolution ever since. Um, many of them have also served in volunteer and consulting roles for, for the organization and have used their experiences with us to springboard into their first jobs or maybe a first job post-recovery. That's been incredibly rewarding for me to be able to give someone that opportunity and kind of see them off on a new path toward meaningful work, which of course we know is a cornerstone of happiness and well-being. Um, but maybe most importantly, our leadership board brings this, like you said, the real life faces, real stories to this experience uh, through our website, through our blog, through the online chat support community. And that's what helps to normalize and humanize this, this experience, um, which, you know, really helps to show that high school student or maybe college student that if they're going through this, they are truly not alone. They're not separate from everyone else. Um, and ultimately, they will get through it and get back into their lives just like Carlos did or just like Amanda did. And we're actually um, going to be able to speak with one of your uh, youth leaders in a few moments. We're going to be mm -hmm. Christine. And so I'm excited about that and we'll kind of get the audience will be able to hear um, how articulate and passionate the youth leaders are and the importance in the structure of this organization. Um, so speaking of our audience, their parents, mm -hmm. um, 
What do you wish all parents knew about mental health and psychosis? Yeah, as a family member, I really wish families knew what I didn't know when my brother was first diagnosed. For years, trying to help my brother was like feeling around in the dark. Uh, I want families to know that thanks to this model of care that is treating young people early in this recovery-oriented way, recovery today is truly possible. And that idea all by itself is like a totally... (laughs) idea. Um, It's definitely not what we heard from my brother's doctors at the time of of his diagnosis. We were told that, you know, he needed to be on disability, that he would never finish college or go to school or be able to work. And so for a long time, those were the expectations that my family had for my brother and frankly, that he had for himself. So I really want families to know that that whole idea is a falsehood. And there's so much more possibility for young people, particularly when they're able to get help early on. And I know you're going to hear that and and have that underscored when, when you hear from Christine. I also want families to be aware of the warning signs of psychosis. This is really a public health effort um, so that they're able to catch a problem earlier since early intervention is really the key to recovery. And I appreciate, too, as a parent myself, it's not always easy to peel apart typical teen behavior from mental illness. But if things like sleeplessness or increased agitation or suspiciousness persist for some time and then begins to interfere with relationships and day-to-day functioning, then it's absolutely worth checking in with a qualified mental health professional to assess what's going on. One hallmark issue with psychosis that parents often face, and we hear a lot from our our parent community too, is that a young person doesn't always have the insight into their need for help, and they won't accept it. Of course, the earlier you catch it, the easier it is that that help-seeking can become because some amount of that insight may still be intact. But if you're dealing with a teen who will not accept that they need help, I often encourage parents to think about someone close to their child who they really trust and have that person empathize with your teen about their situation. Maybe it's a close friend or a sibling, a favorite uncle. For my brother, it was a cousin. Um, And the focus should really be on what your teen wants and cannot have because of their state of well-being. Maybe that's improving grades or getting back to college. It may not happen overnight, but finding a shared goal to work toward together will often open the door to your teen receiving help, being open to that. And then finally, I just want to emphasize for families and and parents that based on my experience and the many families who I I know who who I've supported and we've supported um, uh, through, through the organization, holding on to hope is absolutely essential, even when your burden can feel really extra heavy or the circumstances feel kind of bleak, Um, taking care of yourself, drawing boundaries that enable you to take care of yourself, and making sure that your young person consistently knows that you believe in them, that you have hope. I think all of those things are are really fundamental um, to moving through this experience. 
You know, I couldn't have thought of a better list uh, as you were as you're speaking about that. Um, as a psychologist that specializes in working with children's mental health and and works with parents all the time, you know, early intervention and is is so important for so many issues, mm-hmm. and we see the benefits um, for the earlier the intervention, and also just you know what I hear you saying is 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 bringing a lack of um, judgment and fear around mental health. In into the home, even if it means bringing somebody else from out outside, like a, a, a close friend or family member, too, to help motivate. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what I notice is the the less anxiety that we can have around mental health issues, that message is, is given to our children and they're more comfortable with being able to seek support. The more mm-hmm. support we seek, they see us seeking support. They're much more comfortable with that idea, you know, that it's it's an accepted part of life and we all need help at time. Finally, you know, we are a mindfulness-based, mindful parenting podcast. And mm-hmm. so I'm always curious, What's your experience with mindfulness and meditation as it connects to mental health? Yeah. um, Well, for me, mindfulness and meditation have been really powerful practices. Um, And I kind of loosely translate mindfulness to the practice of, of being present with what is, whatever that is, even the hard stuff, even the big wins, but just sitting with it and creating a little bit of space between what is happening and then your reaction to what is happening. Because oftentimes it's not the thing itself that causes us stress or grief, which might be your son or daughter really struggling, for example, but it's our reaction to the thing that causes us the suffering. So in in mindfulness practice, we're also taught to detach ourselves from outcomes, to kind of loosen our grip a little bit on directing the future. So even though you may be hopeful and intentional about your own health or your loved one's health, for example, being so attached to a specific outcome ultimately can cause all kinds of internal havoc. The reality is, despite what we want to think about our superpowers, (laughs) we really have very little control over the future. Um, and that's taken me a long time. I, I, I mean, still, I, I struggle with that and work with that notion of, of detachment from outcomes. Uh, applied to my own personal experience, I've dealt with anxiety and also in supporting my brother through a very nonlinear path to recovery, I've had to practice radical acceptance of what is again and again and again and again. And I've also had to draw on a well of, you know, persistence and determination and inner strength and all of those things. But more than all of that, I, I think later um, through maybe just maturing in my own life or maturing through this, um, this experience of supporting my brother, I've had to practice letting go of what was out of my control and learning to be present with what, whatever it was that was in front of me. So for me, I think holding on to hope and being present with my brother required me to establish a relationship on equitable terms with him, to not really see us as different because of his illness or even to view myself in a caregiver or helper role, but instead to really just recognize his strengths and work from there. 
And most of all, it required finding a larger capacity in myself to love unconditionally, to see myself in in his suffering, and to practice gratitude for our relationship. Um, So that was a lot, but I mean, overall, I find mindfulness and meditation practices to be incredibly helpful to maintaining a healthy outlook on life overall. I am so grateful for this conversation with Chantel. If you want to learn more about Strong365, Chantel, or reach out to her, I've linked her contact information in this episode's show notes. Chantel was kind enough to share some really important mental health resources with our listeners, which you have access to in the show notes. Listen into our next episode where we speak with teen author and Strong365 board member, Christine Frey. She shares with us how she used her own struggle with mental health to inspire her creative side and become a voice for other teens. That episode is available right now. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating on iTunes so other parents can find this resource. If you leave a rating and a comment, send a screenshot to wideawakeparenting at gmail.com to receive our free balanced screen time checklist. This is a resource we designed for you guys to help you make the daily choices around your child or teen's screen time to decrease the negative effects and hopefully take away that guilty parent feeling that rises up every time you see them viewing a screen. We will not use your email address for anything other than to send you your free balanced screen time checklist. That is our episode. I'm Dr. Kirsten Kazarian, and until we meet again, be gentle with yourself, courageous on your path, and let's help each other try to stay.